a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Guys, welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, and welcome to COP28 now. It's fair to say that this COP is different from previous COPs in that the recognition is we're falling behind. In fact, we're falling far behind in terms of our emission targets. We are in a limited time offer to save our planet from becoming hotter and becoming more susceptible to extreme weather events. Now, this COP28 is attended by over 70,000 participants, believe it or not, and 200 delegations representing nation states as well, international organizations are represented. One message that is loud and clear is we must act and we must act decisively. We are taking baby steps, stepping far too slowly from an unstable world that lacks resilience to working out the best responses to the complex impacts that we are facing. We must teach climate action to run because this has been the hottest year ever in humanity. So many terrible records were broken. Science tells us we have around six years before we exhaust the planet's ability to cope with our emissions, before we blow through 1.5 degree limits. Since Paris, we have made some progress. But we also know that the road we have been on will not get us to our destination in time. We must look for ways and ensure the inclusion of the role of fossil fuels. We collectively have the power to do something unprecedented. Climate envoys from China and U.S. discussed the actions and measures on methane and other non-CO2 greenhouse gases right here, showing the world's two largest economies are acting, inspiring partners and enhancing international cooperation to mitigate emissions. At the summit, China's special envoy for climate change, Xie Zhenhua, stressed the country's achievements in controlling methane emissions. We're going to take specific and effective measures in energy, agriculture and waste management so as to control methane emissions, guarantee energy security and improve people's livelihoods. We're very willing to work with all parties to continuously improve our capacity and implement control measures, plans and tasks in key areas. No one country, no business anywhere in the world will solve this problem by itself. It will take the essence of multilateralism and, and global cooperation to be able to make this happen. The summit follows last month's jointly issued China-U.S. Sunnyland Statement on enhancing cooperation to address the climate crisis. According to the statement, two countries will immediately initiate technical working groups on policies, exchange technical solutions and capacity, building on methane and other non-CO2 GHG emissions. Many are expecting more to be achieved at COP28 to address what they say is a global climate crisis. Gaolong CGTN, Dubai. On the sidelines of COP28, we were able to catch up with world leaders. Let's listen to what they have to say in terms of taking concrete and decisive actions to save our planet. What's your expectation for this COP28? Well, foremost, and uh, I, I would like to see that loss and damage fund 
see some light of operationalization and commitment of funds. We do understand that uh, there is an ambitious goal to realize and address all the climate mitigation, but it's a promising start. Uh, the commitment of UAE, particularly on the uh, Dubai's land, uh, would remain remarkable and historical that uh, they were the one who took the lead and committed $30 billion uh, from uh, or to the, to the countries, all of the global south, uh, which, which definitely uh, has a huge and more requirement, but it's a good start. Pakistan suffered uh, the worst flooding in decades. Uh, it's susceptible, as many countries are, um, uh, you know, to future climate calamities, uh, balancing developments and the need to fight climate change. What will be your message as Prime Minister of Pakistan to the world? Uh, climate adaptation, transformation to the renewables and uh, more sustainable projects in terms of the climate change is the future course. So that has to repeat, be repeated and we should religiously follow it as a small nations, big nations, anyone, everyone. Any thoughts on China-Pakistan cooperation this front and anything to, you want to say to our audience in China? When, when it comes to Pakistan-China front, I don't see any area where we are non-cooperative. We are everywhere with deep cooperation, with deep commitment, with Chinese society and its leadership. Dare to say that our bilateral relationship is at its best level ever. And uh, we are profoundly grateful, and we have always been, President Xi and his role in today's world, and uh, his Belt and Road Initiative helped not only China, but many countries in the world to overcome some difficulties and to create a better environment for the prosperous future. And uh, finally, and very recently, we signed our free trade agreement, and uh, it, is, it will bring us to the next level of our cooperation and hope to, that I'll be able to hosting presidency soon in Serbia. Come visit China again, please. Yeah. How do you feel about COP28, Mr. President? Well, I feel good about COP28. I think it's the climate issues that what we are here. We've been on it since COP26. Yes. But uh, I hope that we can solve some of this problem. What are your expectations for the future relations of China and your wonderful country, Liberia? What are... Uh, we hope that Liberia continues to grow and uh, uh, remain peaceful and, uh, uh, and uh, continue to build cooperation with the community of nations. Nation states, of course, are major stakeholders. As important as they are, there are other stakeholders as well. Cities, for example, are bearing the brunt of the impacts of climate change and they're also on track to be the most promising stakeholders in terms of affecting change. Now, on the sidelines of COP28, we were able to catch up with mayors from around the world. Let's listen to their messages. Mr. Mayor, tell us a bit about how Athens has been bearing the brunt of climate change and climate disasters, because we know that it's uniquely located. It's a must-go place for tourists from around the world, but it's also vulnerable on one hand. Yes, resiliency is key. Uh, in our perspective, I think Athens is back 
in terms of promoting climate change mitigation and adaptation actions. Uh, we are having, we are now a touristic destination also for, uh, for, for colleagues from your country. We are very happy for that, but we need resilient infrastructures and sustainable tourism in order to be, to be able to promote greening opportunities and policies as well as uh, increasing the touristic product. Tell us about your expectations for this COP in particular because hopes are so high, expectations are so high for this COP to deliver. It's a very critical COP in terms of uh, action. We need strong decisions. We are already reaching two degrees. We had a very hot summer, hottest July ever recorded, hottest August ever recorded, so expectations are high. The opportunity window is also very small, so we need to go from theories to action. And this is particularly important for cities, and this is why I'm also here. And tell us about uh, the initiatives that you will have uh, been launching once uh, assuming office in what January next year? First of January. I'm elected and Congratulations, I'm Mr. Mayor. First of January. Thank you very much. So, first thing is to reduce the temperature, the feeling temperature during the summer up to five degrees. You know, it's very difficult during July and August in Athens to have temperatures of uh, 40, 45 degrees Celsius, so it's very, very hot. And with trees and other super cool materials, we aim to decrease the temperature and, of course, uh, to reduce air pollution. We're having uh, uh, air pollution and uh, as many other mega cities and we are trying to find ways uh, to reduce air pollution, to reduce traffic congestion and thus to create more vibrant and sustainable environment for people and not for cars. Talking about sustainable tourism, um, do you have anything specific in mind, uh, especially when it comes to China because Chinese tourists love the, the Aegean Sea uh, they love uh, you know, the, the many islands and the very unique sceneries Indeed. that your city has to offer. During the previous years, Athens was, uh, let's say, a, a way to go to the islands. So, so they were visiting Athens and then they were taking a boat to the islands. So now they are sitting to Athens. Athens is now a destination, a touristic destination. So we need to change also our mindset and create an environment that will attract even more uh, colleagues from China and uh, will foster also joint cooperation also in terms of education. Eh? I know that uh, you are studying in the UK or in other uh, places around the world. Why not in Greece? So I'm also trying to find opportunities for creating a memorandum of understanding with universities and other things, mainly for masters or uh, additional, let's say, programs that will enhance our cooperation and collaboration. Yeah, Mr. Mayor, one question that has been on my mind um, is that how come uh, the Greeks can produce, can churn out so many philosophers, thinkers throughout history? I mean, uh, those people who are blessed with this critical mind, seeing through things. How did you guys do it? It was uh, a long time ago. But uh, I think uh, it was very important that uh, we had all these great uh, philosophers and uh, we are still keep motivating ourselves by these uh, excellent colleagues from the past. But uh, listen, the past should drive us uh, to the future. 
So the idea is to build on our past and create a future that will be based on a philosophy, on the liberty and on more transparent and legitimate dialogues with other countries and we think that we can proceed in this respect and Athens is I think a unique place for promoting democracy. Democracy was born in Athens. Demo people. It's a, it's a Greek, yeah? It's a Greek. It's a Greek word. Democratia is the Greek uh, word. So we want to promote democracy all around the globe. And uh, you know, China obviously is adopting a different system than, uh, let's say, American-style democracy. Uh, and uh, many scholars would argue that they work for China. You know, uh, mobilizing. The people are building infrastructures, uh, driving, uh, pushing through modernization. This is very important, and uh, in my point of view, modernization and uh, new technologies and sustainability should come together with citizens, and this is what we call also just transition, which just, means just, just transition, transition, which means that we we are within a transition, a sustainable transition, but. We need to be all of us together, not only some and some others left behind. So this is the reason why we promote uh, social justice and green justice as, a, let's say, inclusive policies that will help us uh, to become more sustainable and resilient in the future. A personal question. Do you think China and the United States can avoid modern-day Thucydides trap, or should they? We need to work together. We need to collaborate, and uh, we need to keep discussing, having open dialogue. We might have differences, but uh, we are having because we are in the COP. We are. We all live in one planet. We have global challenges like climate change, and if we work together, we can succeed. Otherwise, it will be difficult for all of us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Focus, focus on what's relevant in China and the world. Bridge the, bridge the gap between what you know and what you want to know. This is The Hub. Now, of course, it's not just the Athenians and the Greeks who are all too familiar with the tale of Thucydides' trap. So are modern-day decision-makers in Beijing and Washington. Now, ben Harburg sits on the board of directors for the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, an organization that's among the organizations that staged the banquet to welcome the visiting Chinese president, President Xi Jinping, not so long ago in San Francisco. It's also worth noting that Ben Harburg's father was a former U.S. Air Force pilot who transported late Dr. Henry Kissinger from Pakistan to China, a trip that helped bring about the time between Beijing and Washington. Let's listen to what Ben Harburg had to say. Let's talk about COP28. Uh, so many expectations, uh, so much hope has been laid on this specific meeting. Uh, how do you hope that it can deliver? 
We see the geopolitical poles kind of shifting in this direction. This is a, a market that has a huge amount of appetite and capital for driving um, clean energy, for um, you know getting off of oil as its primary uh, revenue driver. Um, and I think that the timing couldn't be better for all the kind of world to convene here in the place that's now become kind of the new Switzerland to discuss such pressing issues. But according to this, uh, uh, you know, stock take of the world that is assessing uh, where we are right now um, compared with the Paris Accord five years ago, whether or not nations have, you know, delivered on their promises on cutting emissions, uh, we're far behind. I mean, uh, we're some uh, two point, I think, three point five degrees. Uh, that is uh, far short of the goal of one point five degree. Um, what do you make of the urgency? of you know taking climate actions massive massive issue it's one that requires global coordination um, in the balkanized kind of decoupled world that we find ourselves in that that's one of the big things that scares me the most is that we're going to not be able to come together particularly amongst the g2 here to address many of these issues that require each other to collaborate with to, to solve them america cannot beat a lot of its climate targets without chinese technology but what do you think of the sunnyland statement between china and the united states um, issued right after the Xi Biden summit on climate. Uh, a good first step and productive, um, but again, it's it's just one where we we need to see the proof in the pudding, and um, the the announcements will only serve half 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 measures. As an investor, uh, how do you feel about the issue of climate change? I mean, what have been your perception uh, when it comes to uh, climate and the climate financing? Where do we fall short? It's a really challenging space. If you talk to a lot of funds, they'll try to show you their returns with climate investments kind of um, cherry picked out. So it's been one from a commercial perspective. It's been very challenging to find sustainability uh, and therefore it's relied heavily on subsidization and government support. My hope is that we can turn the corner and, and start making some of these types of climate um, uh, ecosystem investments um, more commercially viable so that the, the private sector can really pull its weight. Let's talk about the role of China. Uh, China is producing the largest amount of EVs in the world, among other things. Um, but this is also facing challenges, the economic downturn, unemployment among the youth. Uh, what do you make of China's efforts throughout the recent years and also uh, you know, looking at the future uh, on meeting its emission targets? Uh, China is a huge contributor and I think has in many ways pulled its weight mightily when it comes to um, green, green energy and, and decarbonization. So I think China is, is, has to be a leader. It already is a leader in the sense that it's manufacturing a lot of the solar, uh, a leader on, um, on hydro and wind. And so um, my, my, my view is that if we don't have China engaged at the table, nothing is going to get done. And, and again, I think China has a long way to go, but is very much pulling its weight. Let's talk about uh, the recent summit between President Xi and President Biden. You were in it. Actually, you helped organize part of President Xi's meeting. Um, what was he like? It was, it was really affable. I mean, I think he, you know, he's, he's kind of known, I think, in China as a man of the people. He's someone that's very good at popular politics. And, and um, so he spent a lot of time, for instance, with the, the folks from Iowa, with a lot of time with the... Um, the Muscatine. The, that's right, Muscatine from the, the tiger, flying tigers. Um, and I think he really engaged with And you them. guys, the entrepreneurs. That's right, that's right. And I think that was a really important symbol. There was not a lot of conversation within his talk with Biden or at our dinner about the private sector specifically, but I think just his presence with uh, American uh, business leaders shows how important it is to him. The sentiment was 
that uh, multinational companies are moving away from the Chinese market, and uh, confidence needs to be re-injected uh, into China um, going forward. And President Xi's uh, gesture is seen widely as a move that is saying to the world, "Look, um, China is welcoming foreign investors." Do you think um, China has, you know, uh, is getting the message across? I think China is welcoming of foreign capital. The challenge is that foreign capital is wary of China because of some of that unpredictable regulatory intervention. It's also just wary from a returns perspective. This hasn't been a great year of returns for global investors as they enter the China market. Demand is slowing, consumption is slowing. So I think that's scaring people away more so than anything politically. Ben,、um, tell us about your feelings.、Uh, what went through your mind when we heard about the news of、um, Dr. Kissinger's passing? A really, really a painful moment、um, for me.、Uh, he's someone that I tried to think of as a role model when it comes to playing a constructive and pragmatic role in U.S.-China relations. One that factors in obviously realpolitik, but、uh, a man who I spent a, a, quite a bit of time with. He was obviously a board director with me at the National Committee. He showed up every board meeting. He talked. He shared his views with us consistently. I last saw him at our gala just about a month ago in New York, which I think was one of his very last public、uh, appearances. Um, and he still spoke eloquently, directly, and without notes that day. So he was sharp up until the very end. As、uh, the son of the former pilot, who、uh, took Dr. Kissinger from Pakistan to China,、uh, which helped,、um, you know, engineer the、uh, ice-breaking scene of China and the United States、uh, in 1971. How would your father tell you about、uh, flying Kissinger to China? That plan to see the you in your interest and passion in China and in the Chinese culture and society. Absolutely. I mean, my dad、um, was was instrumental in a lot of. Kissinger's trips globally, and and that infused in me an interest in international relations of, at the beginning, and then of, of all issues globally, U.S.-China to me is 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 second to none,、um, and so that became my my core focus over the last almost decade of my life. So it was remarkable to have been able to be in China and kind of come full circle as a family from the time when my father was involved in some of his early flights to China and opening relations, and I think it's it's somehow fitting that I can continue to play a small role. You know, Ben, we've been talking about China-U.S. relations.、Um, right now, we're standing here at COP28,、uh, a critical juncture.、Uh, your hopes on what China-U.S. relations should be post Xi Biden summit? So I think it's clear that this is now a competitive dynamic, and we, you know, now gotten to a place where decoupling is going full stream. So what we can expect today is hopefully constructive competition, pragmatic competition, and stable competition. So one where both nation feels that there's a set of ground rules and.、Um, Barriers to conflict, so that we can at least compete in a place where hot war and and other kind of dangerous incidences are off the table. This region is really in an interesting role today. It's kind of become the new convening point. You have equal amounts of Americans doing business here as well as Chinese. So I think again, this this setting is fitting as a one that we can address global challenges and ones that obviously require a lot of intervention, also from the global south、uh, and the north.、Um, and and this has become that convening place where all can kind of communicate, do business, and and hopefully come for some. Concrete solutions, and that will do it for this edition of the Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan at COP28 in Dubai, the UAE. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you again soon. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. 
He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Mingxing was a native of Hamyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the Audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America. The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew back and poured the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother. Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother. Written by Nobel Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck, it's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders. Told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in the mother. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far away, stories were told of the brave and the bold. The whole court fell silent to hear what the great warrior Mulan might ask for. Of mighty deities and powerful immortals. Immediately, the shimmering skin started to grow before his eyes of fated love and love sanctified. In dawn's golden light, New Lang said, "Marry me." Of great journeys across fantastical landscapes, so the cat and the mouse climbed on the dog's back, and the dog swam across the broad river in the company of friends and enemies and unimagined beasts. Good to see you. Of ordinary folk with tantalizing stories to tell, heroes and heroines all. It's incredible. How did you do that? Tales of sad sacrifice and victories snatched from the jaws of defeat. Stories of the wise, the accomplished, and the quick of mind. Five thousand years of amazing Chinese folk tales. You'll find Chinese folk tales season three. Wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. Twenty-five hundred years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of five thousand words, which, for the next two and a half millennia, would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle, and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms.